and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast uh, with myself, Peter White, and our analysts, Harry Morgan and Andrew Swantonar, and our product manager, Simon Thompson. We're going to go over the issue we put out on Thursday and ask a few questions and talk a little bit about what's behind the scenes. I mean, I wonder if our readers feel we're obsessed with BP. Um, we tend to do their numbers and put it as the lead story uh, every time. Whatever happens, yeah. Uh, and and I think we we owe them an explanation because I think I agree that the oil companies that have made a transition, they're all small, and and, and the ones that tried before got punished, and BP got particularly punished. It tried to buy into renewables, and it neglected its um, exploration and as a result it didn't have a, a, a growth in its uh, assets and so its uh, its profits weren't there and it, it, it kind of learned from that lesson and went back in its shell 10 years ago. All the large ones were punished by, by not just shareholders but all the investment community who are used to valuing an oil company based on the assets that it's acquired it's got in the ground. And can't think outside the box. None of those people. All they think about is how much oil is there, and multiply it by the existing barrel price. And that's that's all they can think of. It's it's a, a, a moronic way of carrying on. So it's it's about the second wave of oil companies. And BP probably is the one making the noises that makes us believe they're going to make the transition. You know, how many can make the transition before the oil price collapses completely? Yeah, it's really interesting because we've got obviously the US oil majors all consolidating now um, based on the fact that they're going to continue with business as usual. But all of the European majors aren't really um, going through that same stage of mergers and acquisitions yet because they're very much focused on reforming their own business before doing that. We will see in the next sort of, five years them starting to acquire um, renewables companies if they can afford to. I mean, that's another issue that they've got at the moment that they're just laden with loads of debt. But yeah, I think BP and Shell are particularly promising in their promises, I guess. Will it come uh, down to uh, selling your oil assets before they decline in value too much and before other people realise that they don't want to buy them? Yeah, so that's that's going to be a huge part of it in divesting assets that will otherwise become stranded and essentially before they appear as stranded assets on your balance sheet. Um, that's slowly becoming a thing we're seeing and we've definitely seen BP selling off a lot of its um its oil assets sort of slightly. The thing that they're really doing at the moment is just to put sort of cost cutting measures into play. So be that through cutting their dividend, um, a lot of them cutting their workforce. I know Exxon Mobil said they were going to cut, I think, 14,000 jobs this week. They said um, it to that yesterday, yeah, 14,000. Um, so it's these sort of cost cutting measures. And what essentially they're trying to do through that is reduce their debt position, build up sort of more capital so that they can, in theory, buy back shares and then spend more money on capital heavy projects, which hopefully indicates shift towards renewables. I think for Exxon Mobile, it probably indicates continued shift towards carbon capture, which um, will just continue to destroy its value. But with um, BP, Shell and, to- and Total to a, to a certain extent, I think there will be a rise in value at some point. Um, but currently, just due to the fact that they're so entrenched in the oil game and the, sort of the market volatility at the moment, the stock prices are really struggling to pick up again. Well, the old price shot down yesterday. So the day after they've already had, you know, the week after their figures are out and they've put all the bad news in, there's some more bad news. It's, that's what it's going to be like. It's just going to be constantly like that. And that's clearly um, based on the second wave 
meaning even lower consumption of oil, uh, second wave of coronavirus. So, so um, I mean, that doesn't take a genius to work that, that connection out. So um, that was always going to happen. Yeah, I mean, arguably through uh, this quarter, quarter three, economies have reopened um, and international demand has still sort of been 15% lower than it was this time last year. And with prices still at sort of $40 per barrel or less, actually getting margins at that point is something that only sort of the the best oil majors will be able to do. I mean, that's why we're seeing the um, level of consolidation we are in the US. Uh, uh, so what you do is you sell stuff that's further upstream, you know, the stuff that's not ready yet, the assets that are not ready yet, the discoveries and the fields that are not yet been built out. You, you probably sell those because they're the ones you're going to spend more money on bringing, bringing to, to the party. Um, and then you try and get as much money for those. You keep as many uh, you know, assets that are near, nearly ready to produce or already producing going. It's insane to buy your own shares. When you've got a job to be done, when you've got a transition to go through, you need to buy assets. And the problem they have is that the assets they'd be buying, the yield on those, the profit yield on, on a lot of the assets that you, you buy, if you buy the projects from the last um, 20 years, is they don't yield enough money. It's only when you, if you write new business now, at the price solar and wind is now, that you get the maximal uh, return on your investment. So they'll they'll be wanting to actually write fresh investments in volume. That's really hard to do. You can't you know you've got to hurry up. You can't hurry hurry up a wind farm. You can hurry up a solar farm, uh, and you can work on many fronts. But that means carrying a salary base uh, in the renewables, and that eats that eats money. But the whole thing is a game of how do you convert assets into cash, cash into new revenue streams, which are very profitable because they're used to being very profitable. Yeah, definitely. I think the uh, the hydrogen market as well is something that we'll see them really jump into um, just because of the lack of head start that other companies have got. I know that BP is sort of poised to make some sort of announcement over the next month or so um, within green hydrogen. Um, what obviously we're massive advocates for is sort of proton technologies approach where they can actually make use of their existing assets to produce hydrogen, not necessarily green hydrogen, but certainly um, a zero emission hydrogen. I, I um, think that's the most exciting thing that's around at the moment because it's about developing the hydrogen infrastructure and making the commitment to move to hydrogen. And if there's a very, very cheap source of hydrogen, uh, and if, even if it means creating it inside uh, oil wells and then leaving the carbon in the ground and, and bringing it to the surface at, at uh, 50 cents a, a kilogram, suddenly you've got a revolution on your hands. Because it's a new technology, it's not something that they're particularly aware of. It's not like wind or solar, which has got a proven track record. Like we saw with solar and wind, the hydrogen economy will just take off so much more quickly than people expected. I think people expect there's going to be this massive delay as sort of infrastructures developed. We wrote and the Siemens the the story that you, you wrote this week. Yeah, very simple, like incremental approach can be sort of rolled out on a country scale, on a continental scale, where you can actually use your existing infrastructure for a clean technology at sort of 10 to 15% of the cost that it would be to actually build sort of a new infrastructure. But how does and, that uh, work? Because if you if you mix the hydrogen with natural gas and dilute it, then only, that mixture will only work in some devices up to a certain mix. At some stage, you've got to take the leap and say, this bit of pipeline, 
which feeds this part of the gas grid is going to be pure and when you make that leap well then all the pipes coming into it have got to deliver pure hydrogen and then all of the devices you're 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 going to use that hydrogen in need to be used to pure hydrogen so that so that you can't so, so that at some stage it's got to be a revolution i think i think it'll be the case of almost like we saw with hd ready tvs you'll have sort of hydrogen ready appliances that can suddenly take uh take hydrogen as well hydrogen as well as a natural gas um, so can you change all the valves and compressors and use them with natural gas and then uh, when you've finished rebuilding the, the the grid then switch to hydrogen or do you have to switch the day you change the components so there, yeah, so it's basically you can switch them and then they continue to run them at natural gas, especially if you sort of control sort of the flow rates, basically. So the components don't need to change because of the density of the gas or the type of the gas. They just need to change it because you'll need to pump the hydrogen more quickly to deliver the same amount of energy. Right. So it's just having compressors um, and valves that can, can handle the flow rate that's basically three times as great as it was before with natural gas. The energy density per kilogram for hydrogen is much greater than it is for, for natural gas, but obviously to get like one kilogram of hydrogen, you need a much larger amount of space. So when you're thinking about in terms of the energy per unit volume, hydrogen is much lower than natural gas. That's why there's such a sort of hype around um, firstly compressed hydrogen and also then liquefied hydrogen, because that way you can actually increase the uh, volumetric energy density. Um, but if you're just using it in sort of a gaseous form, you need to increase the flow rates to deliver the same amount of energy um, in a given unit, in a given amount of time. But I mean, typically, this if this can be done in Germany, where the grid is as old as anybody's, then it can be done anywhere. Yes, I think Germany is just one of these countries where they've got sort of the the industry there to do it, um, and I think they probably will be the first country to try and sort of roll it out. I mean, we're seeing that through quite a few pilot projects. But I think if it can happen in Germany, then it will slowly spread to the Netherlands, uh, to Denmark, and then so probably in the UK, and then we'll start seeing this sort of Europe-wide approach. Because that's the thing about um, green hydrogen is it will depend on there being a surplus of renewable capacity, and obviously we'll have that in in southern Europe in the summer and northern Europe during the winter. So there will be this sort of disparity of where the hydrogen is being produced um, on like an annual cycle. It it will make a massive difference having sort of a continent-wide infrastructure in place. So so when do you think the first infrastructure will be converted to pure hydrogen? So we've got um, some pilot projects underway at the moment where it will be essentially hydrogen ready, if you like, by 2022. Obviously, the actual supply of the hydrogen might not be there at that point, but um, that's when the infrastructure will be there in these pilot projects. And obviously, then the success of those projects will then depend on where and how quickly other infrastructures rolled out. I think there's this whole point where I think people think, oh, it's not going to happen until a country is close to reaching net zero in its electricity. But it doesn't have to be a nationwide sort of net zero. It can be on a much smaller scale. I know, Andrew, you wrote this week about Southern Australia reaching 100% generation of solar at some point. So when you've got places like that, where there suddenly is just an excess of electricity about, then suddenly you open up this market for green hydrogen, green hydrogen exports. And it's something that people were very much looking to do in the next five years rather than the next 10 years. As I understand it, uh, South Australia is it's, um, it's primarily because there isn't a national grid in Australia. There's lots of kind of state grids and, and, and that theirs has always been underdeveloped and they've just started developing it as solar has been mm. developed. 
And so it, you know, it makes more sense that, that, that there's no huge uh, generational facilities in place. It's a bit like the wildfires in California. You know, you know the electricity is going to be turned off and that triggers you by putting some solar panels on your roof. Um, and in, in southern Australia, the electricity supply was never very reliable, so everyone put solar panels on their roof. And as a result, that the density of solar panels per home is higher there than it is anywhere else in the world. I mean, there's more in America, there's more in Japan, but they're spread over a much larger number of homes. It's a, an experiment where people are going to start to say, oh, we can put, um, we can trade electricity on the grid here, home to home, uh, and systems in place for doing that, because it's a great place to have that experiment, because it's probably the most advanced uh, situation that we've got anywhere. Yeah, it was almost, I think it was it was three quarters domestic solar and one quarter utility scale. And they, they do have a little connector going to Victoria and New South Wales, but it's it's not that big and it gets knocked out because it's so long. A single lightning strike somewhere along its length. Uh, and the, the energy regulator there wants to actually have the power to curtail uh, domestic solar. So do you think that would be a big um, economic uh, factor in favour of having um, green hydrogen uh, electrolyzers in South Australia? Because you've got this energy that will just eventually go to waste. People are still putting on more rooftop solar there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely no brainer that um, Australia is going to become one of the biggest exporters of, of energy in the world in the sort of next coming decades, really. It'll be very interesting to see how it develops over the next few years, especially with a, with a national government that is fairly laggard in adopting renewables. Um, I mean, the renewables there has been very much driven by, by local governments. Um, what do you think about the um, thing in Mexico, which I did a, an article on, where it's um, it's this weird inversion compared to the Western Western politics, where typically it's the right wing that's against renewables. But in Mexico, it's now the other way around. You have this left-wing populist who's trying to completely shore up the fossil fuel um, state-owned utilities. Yeah, so I think this is all about um, this idea, which is an all-pervasive idea about energy security. And people have got this idea that they want energy security. They want to definitely know where their energy is going to come from. Preferably, it's all produced by them. But and Mexico has this idea that because it owns, because the government owns the oil company, the oil brings them energy security because they own um, the uh, coal mines, that coal brings them energy security. And they don't want to be dependent on, on America. But crazily, they're building a new oil refinery in a period when there's no requirement for more oil refinery capacity they're building it themselves and they couldn't get anyone to bid for it at the prices they wanted to pay so they ended up building it and it's going to be built by government and we all know what happens when a government builds something it costs three times as much and where will they get the equipment from all the american companies that make all the equipment so I don't want to import anything. I want my security to be my own, but I'm still going to end up paying these overseas countries for it. We get the same thing going on in Japan all the time. We want energy security, but they, they're building a future based on American natural gas, which is an unstable market, which is not going to survive. Mexico will change direction as soon as they change the government. And, um, I, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with this particular uh, president, 
because he may convince them to give him another term and he may do a lot of other things right. But in the end, he'll be foisting high fuel, high electricity prices on his citizens. And that's an issue that eventually comes home to roost. Um, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Um, we'll follow these stories as we go and we'll be back with you again next week. Thank you.